We are continuing our series, our Advent series called The Unlikely Mothers of Jesus. If you've been following along, we are going through the genealogy found in Matthew, where we see the genealogy to Jesus from Abraham and through David. But conspicuously placed in the midst of that genealogy are four women. We know Mary obviously belongs as the true earthly mother of Jesus, but we have these four women that show up, Tamar, who is a twice-widowed Canaanite. Last week, we looked at Rahab, an Amorite prostitute. This week, we'll see Ruth, a Moabite widow. And then next week, Bathsheba, a woman who cheats on her husband, and uh, her husband's a Hittite. So uh, women who, you might say, why are they in this genealogy? But as we're noticing every week, when we study their actual stories, we find they certainly belong. They have glory, uh, and there's so much to their lives that we can learn from. So we're going to look this week at Ruth. It's four chapters, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read the first 15 verses for you, and then we will talk through the whole story. But I want us to think about Ruth's faithfulness. Ruth's waiting is what I want to focus on today. If we had the title to do over again, I would have said, Ruth, Uh, What are you hoping in? And so that's the question for us this morning. What are we hoping in as we face Advent and come to Christmas this this season? Let's look now at Ruth, verses 1 to 15 of chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Maalon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you for these heroic women who um, do such valiant acts of faith. And Lord, as Christians, as your children, we long in our short time on earth to be heroes for your kingdom and for your gospel. But we need you. We need your spirit to revive us, to show us, to give us deep belief in your truths. And I pray this morning as we examine the life of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and we think on these things that we would be stirred to uh, yet again walk with you and give you everything. In your name we pray, amen. So Advent is about waiting. And when I look at Ruth, I, I see a woman who is content to wait, to hope. And I was processing waiting around, waiting, do you, I don't think as Americans we're very good at it. I'm a very impatient person. We tend to be that way. Are you good at waiting? How about your kids? How about buying gifts? Like how many times when someone asks you as an adult, what do you want? Do you think, well, I just bought it on Amazon, you know? I don't really know anymore. I don't wait any longer. I remember one time where I was forced to wait. We were driving back to seminary, which takes us through I-44. And if you know the area, you go in Tulsa, you take that ramp that goes up and over the highway and off to the turnpike. And that ramp had a turned over semi. And you could see it. And we were in traffic. So that made us wait. In fact, because we could see it, we thought, there's no use sitting in our car. So everyone began to get out of their cars and have conversations on I-44. It was very interesting. And what I realized is really we're all very good at waiting, if you think about it. I mean, everyone in this room would be excellent at waiting if you realized and believed with all of your heart, there's no other option. Like there, I see the semi, it's turned over. What else is there to do? I think the reason most of us struggle is as Americans with resources, we often have other things, other hopes, possible other things that would answer our desire. So waiting becomes hard. But it's when there's no more hope that waiting is your option. Think about uh, one more example. People who wait in the lines on like Black Friday. And the, and the news media loves to walk up to those people. They have a tent. Are any of you those people? You have your tent and your chair and your blanket and your hat and your cooker and there's meat on it, and you're just content to wait. How? Somehow you've been convinced that what's inside that store is gonna be everything I need. So there's two examples of waiting, one more negative, one more positive. We struggle to wait, I think, on Jesus at Advent because we do have so many other options in our minds. And I hope we'll see from Ruth, she knew there was no other option, so she could wait, she could hope, she could cling to Naomi. And our goal this morning is to see that because Jesus is our only option for true life, we can learn to wait for him with hope. Three things, the setting for hope, the twist of hope, and the surprise of hope. So the setting for hope in our passage, as you've heard us read already, Naomi and her husband and their two sons left Bethlehem. We aren't told uh, of how wealthy they had been in the past or what kind of land they may have had. They were Ephrathites, but there was a famine. We do know that not everybody left because they returned and people recognized them. But for some reason with that famine, their option that they took was to go away and to sojourn in Moab. 
And as you know from the story, at some point, Naomi's husband dies, Elimelech. So she's a widow. And in that culture, like, that was it. That was bad news, except she had two sons. So there was a little hope, but for her, all of her dreams were starting to drop to the ground. Two sons die after taking Moabite wives. So now we know that Naomi has these two daughters-in-law, and she doesn't know what to do. It's a very desperate situation. Now you might say, well, she could go back to Israel, as she did to Judah, with these two daughters-in-law. But in Deuteronomy 23.3, we read this Levitical law, this law for Israel. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. So if Naomi is devout, which she appears to be devout, and she's even taught these daughters-in-law, as her husbands may have taught them, about Yahweh and God, they know for them to return is bleak. But she decides she's going to return. And you know the story. She's heading back. There's this feel. You know when someone says they're going to get the bill, and you wonder how often do you have to, like, argue? Does anyone, you know, like, that's kind of what this feels like to me. It's... um, they're going back. The daughter-in-law are with her. They're kind of at the edge of the driveway or something. And finally, Naomi's like, look, enough. And they weep and say, no, 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 we're coming with you. There's this cordial back and forth. And as we know, Orpah takes what would seem to be the right out. Like, Naomi's saying, I can't have a son, A. And B, even if I did, are you going to wait the 20 or so years to marry this son? Just stop. And Orpah says, okay. Kisses Naomi and leaves. But Ruth doesn't do that. And as we're looking at Naomi's explanation to them, I want to draw our attention to this verse 11. Listen to what she says. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? We've already talked about that. Verse 12, turn back. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. In verse 12, And then she says, would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, it's exceedingly bitter to you to do that. It's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. And listen to what she says, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's lamenting. She's utterly sad at what God has dealt her. And what you have with Naomi is good theology. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. In a few moments, well, the, the reason they're even going back to the land we're going to know is that God, she attributes to God, is bringing forth the growth back in Judah. She understands God is sovereign, and yet she's lamenting. One, uh, one writer refers to her as the female Job. You know, Job is the male who uh, has lost everything and yet will not forsake God but he laments. That's a weird word. Raise your hand if you've used the word lament in the last month. Right? Okay, Bonnie has. I don't remember it. Lament. Weep. Sad. Be aware of hardship. See, we are Naomi. To varying degrees. All of us are outside of Eden. All of us are not where we want to be flourishing. Yes, there are things going well. Yes, for many of us, there are blessings. But all humans, 
especially those that are children of God, the Christians are, are able to acknowledge we are outside of where we want to be, and we are like Naomi. But we struggle as Christians, I think, to lament. Do you cry? Do you get sad? I know I struggle with it. I think so often our bad behavior is rooted in our attempt to avoid sadness. I'm going to say that again, and I want you to just think about these words. So many of the bad behaviors, the things you hate that you do, the struggles, the defense mechanisms, whatever those things are, are rooted usually in our avoidance of sadness. And if you would learn to just slow down and pay attention, you'll find that there is sadness right below that harsh rebuke, right before that next drink, right before that online purchase. Whatever avenue you take, so often we're taking these things to avoid sadness and lamenting. And when we look at these ancient brothers and sisters in Christ in the Bible in the Old Testament, they teach us to lament well. Um, Next week we're going to talk about Bathsheba. She and David have an affair and she becomes pregnant. So this is kind of a foreshadow to next week. But after David's repentance, after Nathan has visited him, God tells him the child is going to die. And David grieves. And in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, if you read the story, we won't actually get to it next week. But David is grieving and he's fasting and he's in mourning over the fact that this child is sick and is going to die. And it's interesting because God's already told him this child's going to die. Did David have a lapse in theology? Did he think, maybe I can convince God otherwise? I don't think so. I think David knows how to be sad. I think David can shepherd us in knowing how to, at one and the same time, say, theologically, God is sovereign and I trust him, but I am an embodied person who is allowed to weep and be broken and be sad. It's interesting in David's story, the moment he finds out the child dies, they're whispering, the, 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 the elders and everyone, he can see that something's transpired and they don't even tell him, he just knows the child's died. And then he gets up and he bathes and he, you know, he anoints himself, he re-enters the flow of life. And they were so surprised by this. We can learn from David, we can learn from his grief, we can learn from his lament. So I just want to ask you, before I move on to some of the better news in the story, what are you doing to avoid your emotions? Social media, busyness, Netflix, religious jargon. How many of us do that? We just say something religious, maybe even right, but we aren't really wanting to enter into the hard places. Maybe some substances, things you take and drink, fantasies. What are you doing to avoid the hard spaces? God wants us to go there. God wants our walk on earth as we wait for Jesus to be aware of the hard places. But there's a twist in our story, right? There's a twist that here's Naomi. She's, a, she's made this perfect speech. Certainly Orpah, by the way, that's where Oprah Winfrey got her name. For those of you, her mom transposed the letters on accident. So it's Orpah, Oprah. Anyway, true story. I think. I'm not offering any cars today. Um, and that's a really sad character. Of all the characters in Ruth, that's the one you don't want to be, I think. You know, the one that left Naomi. Okay. 
But then there's Ruth. And then we've met the last verse we read, you know, I think Naomi kind of looks up thinking, good, they're gone. I don't have to bring a Moabite. It's bad enough. I've got to go back to Judah, kind of licking my wounds, but now I'm going to have Moabite women? Well, no, except for Ruth clinging to her. There's a twist, isn't there? Ruth. I love this idea of, of clinging uh, to Naomi. See, our culture, I think, doesn't cling well. We've lost connection. We've lost oaths. We've lost following through no matter what. So often, I think the way we go about it as a culture is we ask, well, certainly I made that vow, that agreement, but I assumed I'd make me happy. And as soon as, ha- as, soon as happiness fades, as soon as I don't see the possibility anymore, I feel the freedom to sort of readjust the oath, but not with Ruth. Ruth clings to Naomi. And listen to the words. I didn't read them before, but these are often even read at weddings uh, and other places where vows might be taken. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. There's a lot. That's amazing. You know how much better a marriage might be if you knew there was no reason your spouse would leave you? How much better would your faith be if you knew that about God? Like, there is something about the freedom of knowing there's someone clinging to you no matter what you do that rather than making you run crazy, might actually make you run toward that person. That's what Paul clearly teaches in Romans 6, right? That, that rather than saying, by, by no means, with this grace, I'll, I'll be crazy. He's like, absolutely not. You'll be more in love with Jesus in his laws and his ways. That commitment is very rare in our, in our culture. I've used this story before, but it just... It's a striking story of Robertson McQuilkin. He was a president of, at the time, what was called Columbia Bible College. I believe it became Union Seminary in 1990. But he was the president there, and his wife became stricken with Alzheimer's to the point of just no more ability to be on her own. And yet, part of the symptoms for her were fear and and just extreme terrified, she became extremely terrified when he would be away from her so that some of his own friends advised him, like other faculty members, maybe it's time to put her in an institution. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, that's ethical, the dilemmas, we can discuss these things, but what he does is shocking. He steps down from his position. And when asked, he said, had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health? Till death do us part. He goes on to say, this was no grim duty to which I stoically resigned. However, it was only fair. She had cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion, and now it's my turn. And such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. And he resigns. And his speech has been heard by 10,000 people. And I think it's a very encouraging concept for our time. 
Why is this so shocking? It's again because our culture really does say as soon as the agreement doesn't benefit you, it's time to break the agreement. You know, even bankruptcy laws used to be very, my, I remember my grandfather's generation, you never do it. Now it's a strategy, you know. It, we need to think about our oaths and our vows and look at people like Ruth and see her commitment level. Are you clinging? Are you holding on? Are you in a vow that's hard? Have you made agreements that are difficult? How is Christ freeing you to keep those agreements? Let's look now then at our point three, the surprise of hope. Right, so we saw the setting, which is bleak, and she laments. We see the twist. Ruth comes, and she stays with her. But the surprise of hope, Ruth, in staying and clinging to Naomi, actually becomes fruitful for her. See, Naomi is aware of a few different laws. So when she returns, um, she has a plan. She's aware, if if we didn't go into chapter 2, but she's aware that, that there's a law of welfare in Israel where when they glean and harvest a field, they're, al- they're told to leave some of the, of the crop behind so that other people who are in need can come and glean that up and, and, and have that. So they have sustenance. So Naomi instructs Ruth, go to this field. In fact, the person is a relative whose name is Boaz. So at first thought, it's just, Let's follow these rules. Go and do this. And so Ruth obeys. So Ruth not only clings to Naomi, but Ruth begins to work for both of them. Now, as the story unfolds, Ruth notices something. Boaz begins to pay a lot of attention to her. In chapter 2, he um, calls her to himself and to the group and says, listen, basically he gives her a promotion. Stop gleaning Become one of our harvesters. I want to instruct the young men not to harm you. I'm going to have the other women watch after you. He brings her in and and gives her a position, a a job that absolutely blesses her and Naomi. Where he says in verse 15, let her glean even among the sheaves. They have dinner that night. Okay? It's like an Old Testament romance. There's no Fabio on the cover, but it's a beautiful, no one knows what that even means anymore. All the old, anyway. Um, they, they end up having this meal, and then Ruth goes back and tells Naomi. Naomi's like, tell me everything. Where did you glean today? In the chapter two. Where have you worked? Well, there is this guy, you know, Boaz, you told me about him. Well, he, he brought me in, and she begins to explain the whole thing. And he says, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi says to Ruth, to her daughter-in-law, this is good. This is good, my daughter, that you go out with this, his young woman. Do this, lest another field you be assaulted. So, so there's this sort of blessing in what is happening. But then she gives Ruth this instruction. I want you to go tomorrow. I want you to be clean. Don't be dirty. Don't wear your old stuff. Wear your nicest outfit wash, anoint, and go to Boaz. And this is where it gets tricky. Uh, She goes and does what her mother-in-law says, and Boaz, at the end of the day, has um, eaten to his fill. He's had some drinks. He's exhausted. He's asleep. And she comes to his feet and uncovers his feet. And so every, you know, commentators are trying to figure out what's going on. 
I, I think this is what's happening. I think she actually uncovers his feet. I just think that means a lot in that culture. It's like a proposal. I don't think there was any other funny business yet, but I do think it was intimate. And when she uncovers his feet, she says to him who she is. She introduces herself. And, and I think it's funny, his response. He says, who are you? In, chapter, in verse 9 of chapter 3. So just imagine, he wakes up, there's this woman who smells delightful, is dressed as beautifully as she can be dressed, laying at his feet, and he's like, who are you? And she explains, I'm Ruth, your servant. And she asks, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And his response, ready? May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after other young men, whether poor or rich. What Boaz is saying is, I am going to redeem you. I am going to not only, we've given you the, the, the crop and you become a, a harvester, but now I'm going to make you my bride. And I'm going to redeem you. And here's what that does for Naomi. The, the twist for Naomi and the surprise is, she's no longer just getting handouts having come back to Judah. She's been reconnected to her family line. Okay? And it's only four chapters, but you can make movies out of this. I'm pretty sure Francine Rivers has written a really thick novel about this. You can do a lot with this story. But they, have, they get married and they have a child. And in, toward the end of chapter four, they've had this baby. And, he, they, and um, the, 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 the neighbor, it says the neighborhood women took Obed, the child, and laid the baby in the lap of Naomi. And they named him Obed. As you know, that's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. Now, do you remember what her lament was? Why are you going to go with me? Can I have a child? Can I have a son? Yes. Yes. Now, she was the nurse. But there was a sense in which Ruth is saying, but you will raise this child. It, the way it's written, again, the literary restraint, which we'll talk more about next week, reveals that in some ways, Naomi was redeemed, not only into her family and her land and her harvest, but there was a son placed on her lap. How do you think Naomi sees Ruth when that son, that boy, was placed on her lap? What do you think Ruth looks like to her? Let's just think about that for a minute. Naomi was as down as she could be. She's leaving everything in Moab. Sons, a husband, they're dead, they're graves, and even daughters-in-law. And she's going to go back and be a beggar. And Ruth says no and clings to her. How does she see Ruth? Ruth not only clings to her, but Ruth provides sustenance for her. More, and if you read through chapter 2, I mean, more than they could ever want. They ate to their fill. Ruth connects her to her family through marriage, and Ruth places this child in her lap to raise, to watch run through the fields and open presents and sing and all the things we're doing with our children. Ruth, how does she look to Naomi? So I mentioned the commentator that talks about Naomi being a female Job. I, I, just, I'm, I think Ruth looks like a female Joseph. You know, Joseph is the only Old Testament character you really 
can't find sin. You have to infer that maybe he was bragging about the coat of many colors, but for the most part, there is no sin. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Isn't Ruth? Isn't Ruth? There's no sin. She leaves her country and comes and restores Naomi to her former glory. How does Jesus look to you? At the end of John, Jesus is risen. He's in his um, risen, resurrected body. He's not yet ascended. And he and Peter are having a conversation. And remember, he says to Peter, do you love me? And I'm struck by Peter's response. If I were asked that question, I want to be honest. I, I think I would say yes, but wouldn't you just have that moment of, I think I do. I mean, and Peter says, you know I do. You know I love you. Do you love Jesus? Why would Peter love him so much? Because of his glory, because of his saving Peter, because of his rescuing Peter, because he's the, he's the omnipotent son of God, who if you could see for a moment in his glory, you would bow down and never want anything again. Like the pearl of great price, you would sell everything to have even five minutes with him. People will give their lives for a hit of a drug. And we're called into heaven and having an eternity with the only source of glory there is, the triune God, and he's inviting us in. And we're saying, yeah, I have other things to try out first. And Advent is that season where we get to rescue, be rescued by him, longing for him, and basking in his glory. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has come to you. What Christmas celebrates is not only the first coming of Jesus, but the longing for his return. You have that if you are in Christ. So what are you clinging to? What are you, the, the, these are the application questions as we close. Like what are you hoping in at Christmas? What is the, not like the thing for gifts, but just in general, where does, what's bringing you peace? Might I suggest that we go examine our own hearts. Remember the, the things we're passing over by not lamenting? Because when you lament well, point number two, and begin to notice the struggles in your soul, the, the hard places. There's not an Amazon product you can buy that I'm aware of. There's only a Savior. That's what's going to drive you to Jesus. And when you bask in his scripture, you bask in these, the means of grace with the Lord's Supper, with, with worship, with hearing the word preached, we can rest in the fact that he loves us. But I want you to hear these words. I want to come back to Boaz, and it's just a stark place where Boaz says, who are you? You had so many other options. Like, like, why would you choose me? Jesus chose you. Jesus chose you. Naomi's leaving, gives the farewell speech. We give that speech to Jesus all the time. Jesus, I get it. I get why you wouldn't want to follow me. I get it. I, I did that sin again. I'm just beyond help. I get it. 
Just go home. Why would you even follow me, Jesus? And he's clinging to you. He's saying, I will not let you go. There's nothing you can do if you are a Christian that he would not cling to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Where you live, I will live where you sleep. I mean, Jesus loves you. And this Christmas season, as we long for his return, and this Sunday, Sabbath day, let's meditate on the fact that he chooses you. Let's pray. Father, so much shame and guilt, as Tom prayed earlier, separate us, not actually from you, but in our own minds. Lord, like Naomi, we just think no one would love us sometimes. Or maybe we're so proud we just think we deserve your love. Either way, we're not resting in you. Lord, I pray this morning that this gospel presentation of the person of Ruth, whom somehow through your divine plan was made so glorious that she could actually give us a glimpse of the way you treat us and love us as your children, that you cling to us. We abide in you. Lord, our our union with you is set. And I pray that we would live out of that reality. Lord, you, like Ruth, who went and followed several laws, you followed all the laws so that we are now law keepers because of your blood. And Lord, we are adopted by you and we are your children. And I pray that that would move us with confidence to have hope in you alone as we wait for your return. Amen.